So this last uh, week when I was in Africa, I had a conversation with Dr. Katanga. I had many conversations with Dr. Katanga, but when I first arrived, uh, Steve Whalen and Sheila Lance said to me, um, one of the keys of working with the people here in Africa is that you need to be very flexible. And I had that in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really focusing on it. And uh, the first day that we arrived, Dr. Katanga, who leads the ministry there, said to me, um, Mark, that the teaching that you've brought to do for the pastor's conference and the leadership that you're going to bring to that, we, we still want you to do that, but we also would like you to um, teach our teachers here. So in the daytime, you're going to be leading the pastor's conference, but in the evenings, you're going to be teaching the teaching staff. And I immediately started thinking, okay, be flexible, be flexible. So I'm thinking, how do I retool my material that I brought for a pastor's conference to make it applicable to the teachers? So I started working on that. And then the, the day of the first session, um, he came to me and he said, now, one of the things we'd like you to do, Mark, is be flexible with your schedule because um, the teachers may come in a half hour early. They may come in a half hour late. We just need you to be relaxed about it. And I don't know what came over me, but I just turned to him and said, Hakuna Matata. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he turns to me and he said, where did you learn that? <laughs> he said, that is very good. I said, I've been practicing my Swahili. <laughs> I didn't know he hadn't seen The Lion King. I'm just, I was assuming I figured everybody had seen it. So I said, it's my new worry-free philosophy. He didn't get at that. So, Well, it was, a, it was an excellent trip. I want you to know that what we're going to do in regards to filling you in on what happened in Kenya is we're taking next weekend to use the entire medical team that went uh, to give a report to the congregation. And that's how we're going to use the service. It'll be a time of praise and worship. Each individual will get a chance to give their perspective, and uh, we're going to share videos with you and, and photos of what God's doing there. Here's why, specifically, God didn't just do it through us, He did it through you, through all the prayer support, the emails that were exchanged, the financial support that went into it, the supplies that you helped to collect. It was New Hope the Body that went there, and New Hope the Body that came back, and so New Hope the Body is going to report and help everybody know how God used us, because we're pretty excited about the things that God did. There's some very, very great things that he did through us, and we're excited to share it with you. But that's for next week. I'm going to take you back to where I left off at two weeks ago before I left for Africa. I told you that we'd come back to the book of Judges, and where we left off at was in Judges chapter 6. Specifically, we looked at a very familiar word because of the study that we did in the book of Revelation for almost a year, you got very familiar with this phrase, hooper nakao. And I used it again in this last um, Sunday when we were together in the book of Judges because God looked at Gideon as someone who was a conqueror. When he first showed up on the scene and greeted Gideon, he said to him, hail valiant warrior. And he called him a, a conqueror. Like, obviously, Gideon didn't feel like that. Many times, you don't feel like that. But that is a label that God has attached to you. It comes from Romans 8. Paul wrote that we overwhelmingly conquer. So when you see Hooper Nakao, that's you, even when you don't feel like it. You gain a decisive victory, more than conquer, when you fight on behalf of the kingdom. God works through you. That's what we're told. 
So what we found in the book of Judges, just as a refresher for you, is what you see here is a clash of kingdoms. If you get a chance to read the book of Judges at some point, start with chapter 1 and read all the way through, and what you're going to see is a violent clash between earthly kingdoms and between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. It's a war against Satan, God against Satan. Man on earth experiences it. It's lived out because of how Satan deviated God's people away from their focus on God. So Judges chapter 6 helped us understand that there is a nation that completely left God out of their lives, and that was the nation of Israel. They'd known great affluence, but they abandoned God and they ran the opposite direction because they got soft. Judges 17.6 tells us this, everyone did as he saw fit in his own eyes. That's the degree they got to, the point where they were making up their own rules according to what they thought was appropriate. So let me take you back to Judges chapter 6 as a refresher. Here's verse 1 so you understand the setting of what we're going to look at this morning. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So we have a nation who became incredibly prosperous. Their affluence had led them to become soft and lazy, and they let down their standards 300 years since the death of Joshua, and the nation continued to expand its horizons. Its wealth increased, but they dropped God's standards. They dropped God's laws. And so the Midianites, they organized a coalition of surrounding neighbors. These are the ancient Arab nations. And the people that are to the east, the Bible describes, the ancient Arab nations came in against Israel, and they're about to take them on. They've organized a coalition, they invade their land, and all Israel could do is run to the hills. They pick up their shovels, they dig strongholds in the caves, a place where they can bury themselves until the Midianites go away. And when they come back to their homes, they find devastation. Their olives are gone, their grapes are gone, their wheat is gone, their livestock is gone, and they're going to face another year without adequate food. So God confronts Gideon this Hooper Nakao, and says, you've got to deal with the sin in your own life first because there was sin in the camp. His own home had an altar to Baal, and he said, you've got to repent, which literally means turn and go the opposite direction. You've got to go a different way, and so Gideon did that. He dealt with the issues in his own life first, and then we see that he trusted God and did exactly what God told him to do, and out of the ashes, a newborn hero of the faith rises and begins to see that this God is someone that he can follow. He's confronted spiritual wickedness in high places, and now God's going to use him. That's remarkable, church. One who considered himself a wimp, who said, I am the least My tribe is the smallest. I'm the youngest in my family. How could you possibly use me? Now we found in verse 33 where we left off, he now has the power of God resting on him. Go with me to verse 33 because you're going to see a man who's about to go to war, literally go to war for God. Verse 33, 
Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they came to meet him. So his first crisis that he faces here, the first crisis is the annual invasion of the Midianites is about to take place again. The Midianites are about to sweep in for the eighth year in a row. They're coming up against them, and they come in the month of May. We learn that they're coming during the time of the wheat harvest. Wheat is always harvested in Israel in May. So that's the time when they're sweeping in here. However, this time when they're coming to pick up the food, the enemy is not going to feast without a fight. They're going to have a fight on their hands. Gideon now is encouraged. Why is he encouraged? Because of his initial obedience. He's obedient to what God called him to do, and that encouraged him to take the next step and the next step. And he's getting stronger. And he's getting bolder. And we're told in verse 34, the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, settled upon him. This is an incredible word picture that's used here. The phrase came upon him is an ancient word. It's the word labash. Look at the definition up on the screen. Properly to wrap around, to put a garment on. And when I saw this word phrase used here, I immediately thought of how my wife and I used to dress our children when they were little in the wintertime. Back in the days when there were snow in the month of February, we, we would bundle our children in warm clothing and allow them to go out into the elements. That's the word picture that's used here. God surrounds you. So with Gideon, this clothing of God, the Spirit of God wrapped around him. Is that consistent with what Jesus told us about the Holy Spirit? Let's go to the book of Luke and see what Jesus said. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Have you ever seen that before? God wraps you in the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit came and went. But Jesus said when the Holy Comforter, the Holy Spirit comes, he will stay with you. That's the presence of God surrounding you. So the same Spirit that came upon Gideon is upon you. So as a result of this, Gideon sounds the trumpet. He blows a trumpet to gather the troops together to call the armies. And do you notice who are the first to respond? The men of his own tribe. Now, you only have to step back to two weeks ago when we looked at the first part of this passage, and you see that those men of his own tribe wanted to kill him because he tore down the Asherah pole. But now they're the first to respond. When he blows the horn, they're standing right strong with him. He stood strong, so now all of a sudden, fellow God followers are stepping up to the plate. I experienced the same situation just a week ago when I was teaching the pastors, doing the pastors' conference, and I'm working through the book of Titus, and I knew that one of the passages that I was taking on was going to be very uncomfortable for them because it was really going to push some buttons on some things that they were doing wrong in their churches. There were 75 pastors in this conference, and they represented many, many more churches than that. 
And there was a particular passage in Titus, which I'll explain to you next week. But when I taught that to them, I knew it was not going to be popular with them. And I was feeling that sense of uncomfortableness in my spirit, that I've got a room full of individuals who are theologically trained, who have a different position than what the Bible says. And I knew it. And so I taught them what the book of Titus says about that specific issue. After I finished, I was so glad I stuck to the word of God because every one of those pastors came up to me and said, thank you for pointing that out to us. I have never seen that before. That is so clear to us. Now it's black and white. You have forever changed the direction of our churches. I could have very easily watered it down and gone with the gray side of it. But God is not gray. There's black and there's white, and we stand for God. So in Gideon's case, who knew? Who knew that there were other individuals standing around waiting for someone to step up to the plate and say, no, no more sin here. This is what we're going to do. We're going to follow God. And they're the first to respond. Now, I want to help you picture what Gideon is about to engage in. And I want to explain this image before it goes up on the screen so that you understand why I chose it. We are told in Judges chapter 8, verse 10, that Gideon is about to face 135,000 warriors, the Midianite hordes that are coming in from the east. Now, I googled 135,000 in attendance. I just put that phrase in to see what would come up. Well, the first thing that came up was a U2 concert, and yet, unfortunately, all the photographs I looked at that showed 135,000 people, it cut them off. It just showed like two-thirds of the crowd. The very best image is the image that I could find that comes up on the screen next. So now you understand why I chose this one. Go ahead and take a look. Okay. I know some of you look at them and think they are the Midianites, but I, I, I want you to understand The reason I chose that is because the big house in Ann Arbor is the largest outdoor event stadium in North America, yet what you're looking at is 115,000 people. Add 20,000 more warriors to that image, and you begin to understand why the scriptures say that when Gideon looked out upon the valley, it looked like locusts moving around in the valley. It was such a large gathering of warriors. So now you've got that picture in the back of your mind. Let's move forward into verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. If you look very closely at that passage, you'll notice he didn't say, if it is you that has spoken. He's not questioning whether or not it's God's voice. He knew. He understood. He's been having conversations with God. He knows the voice of his God. What he's questioning is, will God really do what he said he will do? And so he's hitting his second crisis here. It's his crisis of belief. Do I really believe that my God, whom I say I believe in, will do what he said he will do? And this has taken him to the crisis of belief. I will tell you that God honors a genuine, heartfelt request. That's what you're about to see. Because this is a very presumptuous request. He's asking God to defy the natural order, the natural law. When things lay out on the ground in a dewy night, of course they're going to get wet. When things lay out on the ground during a dewy night, of course, they're not going to be protected from the moisture. 
What Gideon is asking for is the first stage of a test for him. He wants to know, if I put this piece of wool, this side of a lamb, this fleece of wool that's the skin of a sheep, which absorbs water, if I put that out there, will it have water on it when everything else is dry? And remember, he's in the wine press. We learned last time that that's made of stone. It's got a hard rock ground. So what happens? Go with me to verse 38. And it was so, when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now, I know immediately you're thinking like cereal bowl or mixing bowl. No, this is a big vat. That, that piece of wool will hold a lot of water, and it absorbed it. So now he's got the situation where I'd be thinking in my mind the exact same thing. Man, I hope when I show up the next morning that fleece is dry because then I won't have to go to war. I'm really hoping that everything around it is dry, or maybe everything around it is wet, but there can't be anything exceptional about it. But what happens? He comes and he finds it with so much water, it's sopping wet. And can you imagine when he picks up that piece of wool, it is so heavy from the water, and he begins wringing it, and it completely fills a small vat. Go with me to verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was all on the ground. So he's doing what we would do. Okay, I got one more shot at getting out of this. I don't want to have to do this. Maybe the fleece is so much like a sponge that it absorbed all the water on the ground, so let's reverse the miracle. Now remember, now the fleece is soaking wet to start with. He's wrung the water out, but he's going to throw it out on the ground, and he wants the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. So the second request is even greater. He needs to know that he's got the presence of God's hand on him. Here's an observation for you that I made as I was working through this over the last couple of weeks. If a fleece... If something that you put out before God consists of a very careful observation in which you've got a genuine heartfelt request and you're trying to interpret God's leading in your life, it can be a very healthy thing. I have put a fleece out before God. I've done it multiple times. I'm not talking about when I try and decide whether I should buy a pair of Levi's or a pair of Lee jeans, okay? Not something that simplistic. But we're talking big life rock type decisions, when you're trying to understand, what is God leading me to do? We know that our God is merciful towards us. And if you look at this passage very carefully, you'll see God does not rebuke him even one time for asking this of him. He just wants to know, God, are you right there with me? That is consistent with the nature and character of God. Remember only back to the time when Moses stood on Mount Sinai Moses had done everything that God had asked him to do, and yet he said one more thing to God. Moses responded back, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Would you do this for me? Would you let me see you? And God's response back to Moses was, no man can see me and live. Nevertheless, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and when I pass by, I will show you all my glory and I will put my hand over your face. So God did that. He put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and as he passed by, Scripture says it was like seeing an afterburner of a jet. There was so much of a glow of God's glory moving by. But God did something else that Moses never asked for. 
as he's passing by and he puts his hand over Moses' face so that he will not burst into flames, God begins to describe his nature and character. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord God, abounding in mercy, slow to anger. That's the image our God wants to have of him. To understand, he's slow to anger. He's merciful, and you see that with Gideon. He doesn't rebuke him. So he's showing him, I'm really with you. I want you to notice something about Gideon because I think he's got a bad rap all these years. Many people look at him and say, that guy had like no faith whatsoever. Look at his situation. He's constantly asking God to prove himself. What you'll notice if you look very closely at this passage is you'll see that Gideon assembled the army before he put the fleece out. He called all the warriors together. He blew the trumpet, and then he put the fleece of wool out, looking for God's encouragement that he was making the right decision. Go with me now to chapter 7 and verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Whoever heard of this before? Have you ever in your life heard of a general who is about to face the hardest battle in his entire life, and the odds are overwhelming against him, saying, hey, you guys, if you're afraid, you soldiers can leave. That doesn't happen. You've never heard of a general doing this. Yet that's what your God does. Does your God delight in showing himself powerful? If you've known me for any length of time, you've known this verse I'm about to give you relates to God's power. And if you were with me to the end of my life, you're going to hear me quote this verse, 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's your God. He wants to show himself powerful. So from a human perspective, what he's asking seems absurd. But from God's perspective, nothing is impossible. And that's what he's demonstrating here. Do you think that God's instructions to Gideon came as a surprise to Gideon? I'm thinking so. I'm thinking he's going, time out. Whoa, 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 wait here. The odds are already four to one. We've got one against their four. We're farmers. They're soldiers. Even if he didn't say it, he's got to be thinking that. God, you're going to thin my army? But with God, the size of the army is not the crucial factor at all. The Midianite hordes are located four miles to the north. They apparently know about Gideon. They apparently know about his troops. If you read in chapter 8, you'll see that they understood who Gideon was, and they understood that he had an army, but they think apparently it's too small. 32,000 people, that's not a serious threat. So God carries out the first reduction. He's beginning to thin the troops. He's allowing those who are weak in spirit to leave. Why does he do that? Because when you're facing a God-sized invitation in your life, when God invites you into a God-sized activity, the last thing that you need are people who are fearful and trembling around you because that is contagious. It spreads to other people. 
So God is thinning the ranks. He's removing those, first of all, who are too afraid to even be there. So more than two-thirds disengage and say, wow, it was really great to be with you, Gideon, but see you later. We're gone. They're actually shaking, Scripture says. So now we're down to a fair fight, right? Now it's 13 to 1. Instead of 4 to 1, it's 13 to 1. Why does your God allow times of weakness like that? Even times in which the odds seem overwhelming because it makes us more dependent upon him. It takes us to the place where we're completely surrendered because in my weakness, his strength is made known. That's what he says. In my great weakness, he is strong. Go with me to verse four. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his own home. 9,700 people do one particular action. And this is what's described in the Hebrew text. They go to their knees, then they go to their hands, and they begin drinking like a dog out of the water. 300 crouch. And what are they doing when they're crouching? They're bringing the water to their mouth, but they're also very alert, and they can see. And God has pulled out those who are alert and watching from those who are focused on just drinking from the water themselves. And that's how he separated these out. And now the battle forces will be 450 to 1. God really likes stacking the odds, apparently. 450 to 1. Go with me now to verse 8. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have put it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down with Pura, your servant, go, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp. Verse 11, and you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now, the 300 individuals that he gets to keep may have displayed a greater alertness, but they're probably no more bold than the 9,700. The the group of 10,000 voluntarily stayed with Gideon, but God has thinned them out. So I'm thinking the 300 are no more brave, and there's a reason why I think that. If you've got the same translation I do, it uses the word retained in verse 8, but perhaps you've got NIV and it says the word kept. They're both the same word in the Hebrew language. It's the word kazak. You're not going to see it on the screen. It's not in your notes, but the word kazak means literally to seize upon. So Gideon seized upon those 300. It's used of Pharaoh when he refused to let the Israelites go when they were in bondage. 
When the Pharaoh would not let his slaves leave, it says he kazaked them. He seized upon them and refused to release them. You see that with Gideon. He's refusing to let these individuals leave. And perhaps they've got the strong urge to depart and beginning to tremble. And so Gideon is reminding them of their responsibility. So God even says to Gideon at this point, if you are afraid, take Pura, your servant. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm going to go down to the camp. So do you see what he did in verse 11? So he went. He took Pura, the servant, and he ran down to the camp to hear what God wanted him to hear. Now, we're not going to get into the verses this morning. There's three verses between 12 and 15 that tell about a dream that someone had in the camp. Down in the Midianite camp, a man had a dream that Gideon was going to wipe out their army. And so Gideon responds. He runs down there. He hears what is said. Why? Because he has 1% of his original armed forces. He was at 32,000. Now he's at 300. His heart is wavering, and God knew it. When you're in those very difficult situations, when you need to be encouraged, your God is aware of your heart. He wants to encourage you. And God recognized it in Gideon right away. He wanted to encourage him. So verse 12 gives us a clear picture of what Gideon is up against. Go with me up on the screen. You'll see this. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So this view is incredibly disturbing. Gideon can count. He's looking down in the valley, and he sees all these bodies moving around, like you saw in the stadium, only they're all armed with weapons. Gideon can understand the enemy is innumerable, and now he's about to hear this dream that's going to encourage him. And I love those three verses between 12 and 15 because what it reminds me of is that my God wants to encourage my heart even in the most difficult times. As a result of the encouragement, look what happened to Gideon. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. The one who was fearful, afraid of what was going to happen, is now worshiping God because he understands that God is going to work through him. Go with me to verse 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers in the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. This is the only conventional part of warfare you'll see in the entire story. This is the only conventional thing that he does. He divides the groups into three, three groups of 100 surrounding the valley, 100 on one side, 100 on another side, and 100 on Gideon's side. And they're going to do something magnificent. They're spreading out around the Midianites so that it looks like they have a much larger army. So he uses a very specific word here when he hands out the trumpets, the shofar, or pronounced shofarat. Like a cornet, it gives a very clear, distinct sound, especially in the night air. But understand, this is not for musical purposes. 
This is a noisemaker. It can be used for musical purposes, but in this setting, it's used for one specific activity. In ancient warfare, especially at this period of time, trumpets, these horns, the shofar, was always used by the leader of the division of an army, one leader to a division. So if you're hearing 300 shofar blowing at the same time, the immediate perception is there's a massive army up there. So he's got the shofar that he's handing out, and then he gives them something else. He gives them an empty jar of clay, and he puts a torch down inside it. How very interesting that he's got this jar with a torch down inside. The soldiers must have been mystified by why they were giving these instruments. You ever stood with a sibling in the middle of the nighttime, maybe when you were a child, and had a brother or sister take a flashlight out and put it up underneath their chin and show their face through features? You know how creepy that can look in the middle of the night? You just see their face lit up with a light underneath. Can you imagine with these jars that they're carrying with the torches down inside, the light shining up on their face? They're about to blow this shofar, and they're going to begin holding the torches up in the air. This is a very creepy image for those who are in the middle of the night, in the midst of the 10 o'clock watch we're going to see in just a minute. So before we step forward into the next verse, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the soldiers who are working with Gideon. Imagine you're one of the 300. You know what the odds are. You know you're incredibly outnumbered. You're standing in line ready to have your weapons handed to you. And I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, that'd be great. Maybe he's going to hand me a lightsaber or we're going to have a B-1 bomber fly over. That'll rescue us. I'd be thinking, what's the greatest, latest technology? They've got to be thinking, what are we going to use to fight against 135,000? And as you make your way up to the armory, Gideon puts in your hand a clay jar, a torch, and a horn. I mean, come on. Don't you find that amazing? What? Are you kidding me? This is our weapons? Go with me to verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just posted the watch, they, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies, meaning all of them all the way around the valley now, when the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So it's between 10 o'clock at night and midnight, the changing of the guard. The guards are not in a position where they're ready to respond. And once the jars are smashed together, the torches light up the nighttime sky. They pick up the torch with the left hand and begin blowing the shofar with the right hand. And the word ruah is used here. When it says, they picked up the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, the word cried is the Hebrew word ruah, and it means they screamed at the top of their lungs. The actual definition says ear-splitting volume. You would do it too. If that was your only weapon, you'd begin screaming out, yelling, trying to create mass confusion. What's the result of this? It looks like there's a vast army up on the hillside. Verse 21, each stood his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. So from all angles, all they can hear, 
the Lord, the sword, Gideon, the very things that they're most afraid of, and they begin killing each other. Now, this is a great story to look back on and see the history of how God moved among his people, but you have to ask yourself, in 2012, when I sit in church on a Sunday in February, how does this apply to my life specifically? And I would ask the rhetorical question, do we have a Midian in our life today? And if so, if we face a Midian-type force in our life, what are the weapons of our warfare? What's our jar of clay? What's our light? What's our trumpet? Scripture says that we are fragile jars of clay. Did you know that? The believers in Christ in 2 Corinthians, it says you're jars of clay. And the light of Christ shines within us. And the trumpet that you have is the witness of how Christ is working through your life. You are a trumpet to everyone watching you, everyone who surrounds you. You don't look convinced. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians and show you. I'm going to remind you, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. You are the jars of clay. I am a jar of clay. And Jesus' light is shining within us. And yes, we go through very difficult, trying times. We face the Midianites, and sometimes it cracks our vessel, and that just lets more light shine out. That allows God to shine through you every time you go through a hard time encounter. Every weakness, every trial, every time of weakness causes a cracking of our normal strength, but in our weakness, he is made strong. That's what Scripture tells us. Gideon's and his followers, they're armed simply with a torch and a jar and a trumpet. And as a result of God working through them, they storm the Midianite camp, 135,000 people. Go with me now to verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah as far as the edge of Abal Maloah, by Tabath. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. The same individuals that were running up to the caves who carried their shovel with them to dig a stronghold, now they're the pursuers and they're chasing the bad guys. Why? Because they see the evidence of God working through them. Mass panic set in for the Midianite army. And they just began to vacate, running as fast as they could to get away. The sound effects, can you imagine echoing off the canyon walls? Just hearing the sound of the trumpets and then seeing the lights in the sky and hearing men scream at the top of their lungs. There is one consistent theme that you'll see if you go all the way back to Judges 6 where we started two weeks ago and where we end just now. One consistent thread all the way through. You see a man in conversation with his God. He's praying. He's constantly talking with God the Father. 
asking, what is the next step? How am I supposed to do this? Will you encourage my heart? You see a man consumed with prayer, having conversations with God. James 5 says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I've given you some uh, instructions, I call them, in your notes at the very end of your notes this morning. Here are four things I'd love for you to take with you. I call them nothings, four nothings. You'll also see them up on the screen. I'd like you to reflect on those over the course of this week ahead of you as you think back about this teaching. Here's the first one. Undertake nothing in our own strength. This is the one I want to amplify for you because you remember God showed up and said to Gideon, Hail, valiant warrior. In the very beginning, even though he's got the title, he didn't really feel like it. He didn't feel like a valiant warrior, and he couldn't do it in his own strength. So God had to work through him. Second one, draw back from nothing to which we are called. From nothing which God gives you should you draw back. Number three, doubt of nothing where God promises his aid to you. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. Number four, take the glory of nothing which God does through us. Because God knows the temptation is that every time we get a victory, even if it's a little one or a really big one, the temptation is to say, I did that. But we should be encouraged to say, God did that through us. So here's where we started two weeks ago. Romans 8.35, we're told that we overwhelmingly conquer. You are the hooper nakao. But the truth is, most of us sitting here right now, if our minds haven't drifted off to think about the Super Bowl or we're wondering about what's to eat in an hour, we begin thinking, I'm just not feeling it. I don't feel like the hooper nakao. I don't feel like the super warrior. The truth is, most of the guys in the Bible didn't either. Even Paul, even Paul did not feel like the Hooper Nakao. And he constantly said to God, I'm so weak. Let me remind you of the conversation that Paul had with God. This is where we're going to end, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But God's response to Paul is this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for my weakness, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a promise to take with you. Would you pray with me right now? We're going to ask God just to seal this truth in our heart. Would you bow your heads? Father, I'd be the first to admit, and I'm sure everyone in this auditorium would say there are many times when we don't feel like mighty warriors and we don't feel like conquerors, but your word has promised that you're the one who's at work through us. So even though we don't feel like it, your word is faithful and true. You are just and righteous and holy, and you are powerful. So what we can't do on our own, you can do through us. So God, I ask for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who are in relationship with you, the men, the women, the students that fill this auditorium, for those who have been here for each of the three services this weekend, Father, every one of us at this moment, I got, God, I just ask that you would encourage us to remember that we walk before you holy and just and righteous 
and pure in your eyes because of the atoning work of Jesus. And he is the one who has made us victorious. We are the hooper nikao because of what Jesus did for us. So Father, as we take on this week, I ask that your blessing would rest on this congregation, that we would go forth in boldness and courage for you, even when we feel weak, to remember that you are strong. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.